studying the book of Acts. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and just wave to them. They'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage for your convenience, and if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. A single verse in uh, Acts chapter 22 and then into chapter 23 for studying this morning. Verse 30. The next day, because he, that is Claudius Lysias, a Roman uh, commander, wanted to know for certain why uh, he, that is Paul, was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. And then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a, rule, a ruler of your people. And, but when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and another part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both to be true. And then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes and the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Let's pray together. Father, we are very grateful, and we mention it all of the time, but It's true every time we say it. We are thankful for your word, the power of your word, the conforming power of your word. And we acknowledge that we have come out of a week in this world everywhere we have gone this week, and all of the input, all of the messages, all of the uh, heavy pressure, subtle, not so subtle pressure to conform our thinking, Lord, and our decision-making after the ways of this world. And we're thankful to be able to turn to your word this morning and to know that this is something that will never disappoint. This is the way we've been created to live. This is the truth that we need in our hearts to keep hope alive and bring perspective to our lives. And so, Jesus, in accordance with your prayer, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify us By your word this morning, we pray. We ask for this work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This Bible passage is a record of an attempt by 
a Roman commander in Jerusalem at the time to uh, try and discover, his name is Claudius uh, Lysias, to discover the cause of a riot that had broken out in the area of uh, the temple in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost and a riot that somehow had the Apostle Paul at the epicenter uh, of it. Paul, the riot initiated when Paul was falsely accused by the religious Jews of uh, having brought a Gentile into the Jewish-only area of the temple and uh, something that Paul had never done, uh, but the riot exploded and then the attempt was being made not only to arrest him and remove him from the temple grounds, but also to beat him uh, to death. Now, as we've seen poor Lysias, he must, as a Roman commander, file a report related to all of this to determine guilt. Should he release Paul uh, because he's innocent and something's been misunderstood? Is Paul guilty of a crime? And thus he ought to be held in custody and brought uh, to court before uh, Roman law. These are things that he, he doesn't understand at the moment, and so he's trying to figure out uh, the truth. Now, in his search for an understanding of the cause of the riot, he allowed Paul to address uh, the religious crowd that had only previously been attempting to beat him to death. And his idea in allowing Paul to speak was that somehow Paul would begin some kind of a dialogue with them or some kind of an interaction in which it might be revealed to Lysias what the cause, initial cause of the whole riot was. But Paul uh, surprises him by uh, giving his testimony to the crowd, his salvation story, and uh, Lysias is further kind of dumbfounded by everything in that Paul completely surprises him by speaking in the Aramaic language, the everyday language of the Jew. And apparently Lysias hadn't brushed up on his Aramaic before uh, taking this position within the Roman Empire, and he could hardly understand what it was that was uh, being uh, spoken. Lysias then attempted to get to the bottom of things by having Paul examined by scourging, and Paul brought all of that to a screeching halt by uh, informing everyone that he was a Roman citizen and that what they were about to do to him was completely illegal. So, on the following day, we're told, Lysias continues his quest to understand what in the world is going on here, what caused the riot here, and, uh, and he commanded the chief priests and all of their council to appear, this group known as the Jewish Sanhedrin, and uh, to make known their charges against Paul and, and then for uh, them to hear Paul's defense before them, as we're told there in verse 30. You really do have to, if you stop for a moment as an aside, you do have to admire the determination of this pagan man, this Roman man, uh, to get to uh, the bottom of the issue, to discover what are the facts that have actually happened here so that he can properly uh, judge the situation. I think oftentimes it, it can really, as the world so often can do to us as Christians, it can put us to, to shame given how uh, frequently so often even, even I am, I think all of us, prone to believe whatever is spoken to us without any examination of it uh, for what are the facts behind that kind of a charge or that kind of an allegation 
related to a person. But Roman law dictated this, and it was uh, very, very commendable. Uh, There are things, I think, that sometimes the world does better than us, not because uh, we're being obedient to the Word in those areas, but but because we're uh, not paying as much attention as we should. So you picture the whole scene in your mind here, and here is the Sanhedrin. Paul has been brought before them. They are not in their normal place of meeting, and it's important to understand that. The normal place of meeting for the Jewish Sanhedrin was called the Chamber of Hewn Stones, but it lay within the Jewish-only section of the area of the Temple Mount, and so Lysias could not have attended, nor his Roman soldiers. So they're meeting in some kind of a hall that they've prearranged to, uh, to meet in, and, uh, and Paul is present. All of these Jewish leaders are present as well as this Roman military uh, presence to assure uh, law and order. The Jewish council, known as the uh, Jewish Sanhedrin, it constituted the great religious, uh, central religious ruling body uh, in Israel. They were the recognized experts of the law of Moses, and they were given the final authority to interpret any given situation brought before them in the light of uh, Jewish law. It was made up of 70 or 71 uh, members. People debate the two numbers, but it was one of the two numbers. and uh, who by virtue of being on this council were among uh, the 71 most powerful men, not only in Israel in terms of uh, Judaism, but in the entire world. And so here they are, they're meeting in this place. Paul is brought before them, and Paul begins his address there in verse 1 of 23 by earnestly looking uh, at them. He addressed them, we notice, as men and brothers. Uh, He doesn't call them fathers. He doesn't cow down to them in any way. He speaks to them as equals in this environment. Uh, there is a kind of a, a strong evidence within the Bible uh, to, to indicate that the Apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, was actually a part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, and then, of course, uh, not on it anymore once becoming, uh, becoming a Christian. So he sees them as his uh, peers. He's not intimidated at all by uh, this environment. He then proceeded to declare to them that he had lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And so as he stood before them, he declared that uh, his conscience did not condemn him in any way before God, that all of his life, as long as he could think in terms of his life, he had uh, endeavored to please and to obey God. And he was certainly intimating that the immediate circumstances that they were trying to find uh, guilt concerning him uh, related to God and related to Jewish law and so forth, uh, he was declaring the fact that he wasn't conscious of any guilt at all in terms of the circumstances that had led to his arrest and him standing before them in this trial uh, at the moment. In other words, whatever you might think of me or whatever charges you may bring against me, I happen to know that I am right with God in all of this. And so Paul is not only declaring himself uh, to be innocent, not only before them, 
but he's acknowledging the presence of God in the meeting and declaring himself to be innocent even in the eyes of God. Well, he had hardly got these words out of his mouth when the high priest communicated, signaling in some way uh, that Paul was to be struck in the mouth for declaring exactly what he had just declared. And so clearly, Paul's claim of innocence before them and also in the eyes of God, I mean, in declaring to them that he was still a good Jew despite having become a Christian and that he was not at all responsible for the riot that occurred at the temple. And he's intimating strongly, diplomatically, but strongly that the problem that lay at the heart of all of this did not lay with him at all, but with the religious Jews. And, and he further declaring here that God was pleased with him. All of this just angered the priests, and the uh, high priest got the message and ordered him to be uh, struck, to be hit in the mouth, to be uh, smitten. And all of this was a violation of the law of Moses, as Paul was going to let him know in no uncertain terms. The high priest was a man by the name of Ananias, and he's described by uh, the uh, Jewish uh, historian of the ancient world, Josephus, as being a very a violent man, a very, very cruel man, a very uh, uh, unjust, very greedy, very, very corrupt man. He's an awful person uh, to be in this position, but he held the position. So upon being smitten, And Paul, knowing that the uh, command had been given not by the person who had smitten him, he didn't even address that person. He then goes immediately to where the the, uh, command came from, and Paul's response, as we read, was very, very uh, strong. When Paul gets hit, I mean, he's incensed immediately. I mean, he just, he flashes at that moment. And I think that he flashes really with a uh, righteous anger. I mean, you look at things and it isn't like, okay, what's the right thing to say in a situation like this? I mean, the words that he speaks, they just fairly explode right out of him on the scene as he speaks to the high high priest concerning what it is that was going on. I mean, it was completely inconceivable to Paul that uh, this kind of a hearing would be conducted in the way that it was being uh, conducted. You put yourself in Paul's place, and this is supposed to be an open hearing, interested in the truth. He gets one sentence uh, out of his mouth, and then uh, he gets smitten in the mouth, and all of this from religious men claiming to represent the God of the Bible. And so he confronted this high priest concerning the hypocrisy of all of it because for sitting for in the purpose here of judging Paul according to the law of Moses and then commanding that Paul was to be smitten completely contrary to the law of Moses. And as uh, he revealed in the Scriptures, it's, it, it, as we look at Paul, as we see the entire kind of uh, written portrait of him within the Scriptures, it's very clear that Paul had uh, a very low view of hypocrisy. He had a low tolerance for it, uh, even in his own life. And 
and in the lives of others. And to see this hypocrisy expressed, I mean, so openly here in this setting of the meeting of the Sanhedrin where the facts are supposed to be calmly, deliberately uh, extracted from the witness, a case built and an understanding of the situation being handled dispassionately and carefully and, and all. Paul knew what the Sanhedrin was supposed to be doing and all of this, and when he sees it being conducted contrary to the law of Moses, it just enraged, uh, enraged him that someone would give the order, that someone would be smitten in an environment like that. It wasn't just that he was smitten, that anyone would be smitten in that environment, and then that there were people around the high priest that would be so servile as to obey a command like that, it incensed him. And he went on to declare the high priest to be a whitewashed tomb. And this was a clear reference in the ancient world to someone uh, being a hypocrite. And in other words, a whitewashed tomb was a tomb that looked uh, white and clean and holy on the outside, but on the inside, uh, there's dead bones, there's spiritual death there. In the ancient world, for the Jews, when someone would die and there would be a headstone associated uh, with the grave, uh, at the times of the feast when so many pilgrims would be coming to Jerusalem, they would paint the headstones white so that people could see the headstones and not touch them because to come into contact with a dead body or anything associated with the dead would render you ceremonially unclean. And so Paul is declaring this man to be, appear to be one thing outwardly, holy, spiritual. This is the appearance that he's given. But he is, uh, he is filled with spiritual death, filled with hypocrisy. To come into contact with him is not to be advanced by virtue or godliness or holiness, but it is to be uh, tainted by uh, spiritual death. And this is what Paul was communicating, and believe me, the high priest uh, got the message. The specific hypocrisy Paul confronted him with was the hypocrisy of sitting uh, in the, for the purpose of judging Paul according to the law of Moses and then having him smitten contrary to the law of Moses. It's interesting, we live in a country in which a person is presumed to be innocent until proven guilty. Uh, and we live in this kind of, uh, of a uh, judicial understanding in terms of crime or civil cases and so forth, and we can come to assume that the rest of the world is just automatically that way, but it isn't true. There are large sections of the world today in which for you to be arrested, you are considered guilty, and it is incumbent upon you to prove your innocence. And where did we get this view for the way that we uh, view things in our uh, system of law and order? We got it from the Bible. In the Bible, when someone was arrested or charged with something, they were presumed innocent until guilt could be established. That was the tone and is the tone uh, of the Bible. And, uh, and that guilt had to be established under the law of Moses through a very careful examination of the facts. Paul was then, as he rebukes the high priest publicly, he's made aware that he was rebuking the high priest. 
And so obviously Paul's rebuke of this man uh, sent shockwaves through the whole Sanhedrin. They, they confronted him for reviling the high priest. Paul didn't uh, know that he was the high priest at the moment. It could have been his bad eyesight that he wrote to the churches in Galatia about. It's perhaps that the meeting was called so hastily that the high priest wasn't in his normal robes and garb or whatever it might be. Uh, it had been a long time, some 25 years since Paul had been in an environment like this. The high priest turned over uh, every so often, so he wouldn't have been familiar who the current high priest was and so forth. And so he simply rebukes the man who gave this report, uh, this command to smite him, and then now he discovers that it's the high priest that he has uh, reviled. And so Paul was then made aware. And it's interesting, Paul's response, as quickly as Paul had flashed in that righteous anger against this man, just as quickly he, he apologized uh, to the entire setting. He admitted that he had made a mistake for what he had said to the high priest and explaining that he did not realize that the man that he had rebuked was uh, the high priest. And then he began, uh, proceeded to cite the Old Testament law that he had violated in denouncing the high priest in this way. Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Now, Paul does something very important here that's important for us to understand uh, as Christians living in the culture in which we live in uh, today, and it's being rapidly lost within our culture, and that is that Paul modeled for us that he recognized and he honored the office of the high priest, even when he could not honor or respect the person holding the position. And we may not like the various people that have been put into elected office, but as such, as we saw a little bit last week, they are a part of the God-given institution of human government. And a level of respect is to be shown, if not for the person, then at least for the sake of the office that they hold. We can disagree with them. We can seek their defeat in the next election, uh, but we are to show a level of respect while we do so. And the same is true of all positions of authority within our nation. It's the same thing that's true related to law enforcement or school teachers or supervisors at work and so forth. It doesn't mean that we cannot hold them responsible if it's necessary to do so for wrongdoing, but there is to be a civility that is expressed even in doing that. We may not like the person in a position of authority within our lives, but the office is to be respected. The authority structure is to be respected because if this loss of respect within a culture for authority, it, if it crosses a line, then we become some, vulnerable to something far more dangerous than just having a rogue idiot filling these positions in our lives for a time, and that is the complete collapse of respect for authority within a nation, and the result is then uh, anarchy, it is mob rule, it is uh, riots, it is might makes right, 
and we are moving very strongly in that direction in our nation, at least among a, major, a minority within our nation, and it's important to recognize this respect for the position, respect for the office, even when we can't respect the person at the moment who holds that position. Paul wrote in this regard, and, and, uh, and here he is caught in the very situation in Romans chapter 13, give to everyone what you owe them, pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them, and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. Paul got that. In fact, he wrote that, and he acknowledged uh, here the protection the law of Moses afforded uh, the high priest. Now, Paul then in verses 6 through 10, uh, he focuses the uh, attention of the trial that he's in the middle of. He, he moves the attention of everything to the subject of resurrection. The council here, as they're meeting, are made up of two groups, uh, some among the, uh, among the Sadducees, some among the Pharisees. These were the two major uh, religious sects was in Judaism at the uh, time. And it's important to understand a little bit about what they uh, believed concerning the supernatural and the possibility of resurrection from the dead and so forth. The Sadducees didn't believe in anything uh, supernatural. They were the, uh, the rationalists of their day. They were the spiritual uh, liberals of their day. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in resurrection. They were the materialists of their day. If, something, if they couldn't do something, if something couldn't be scientifically proven, then they wouldn't believe uh, that it, 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 it to be true. They didn't believe, by and large, that there was uh, life after death or that there was a, a judgment after death. And they took all of this and then they encumbered God with these same limitations and, and they uh, essentially uh, declared that uh, it, it, the concept of God, their concept of him didn't allow for him to be greater than natural law even though he was the creator, greater than the creation. It's completely illogical, but that's what they believed. On the other hand, the Pharisees believed in all of that. They believed in miracles. They believed in resurrection. They believed in judgment. They believed in life after death. They believed in angels. They believed in uh, all of it, and again, including uh, resurrection. And Paul was completely aware of this in, in terms of the crowd that he's uh, dealing with here. He knows that this dynamic exists there within the council. And so he declares himself to be a Pharisee and that the cause of all of this initial uproar on the Temple Mount and then this subsequent trial that he's in the middle of here, that it all centered upon his belief in the resurrection. And, he's, and he declares that in verse 6. Now, a lot of motives are ascribed to Paul in terms of what he's doing here. Uh, some people look at it and they say, well, this is a very clever tactic on Paul's part. He sees that this council can be easily divided on, on this particular subject. He knows what their view is on uh, the view of each of them on the subject. And so he brings up the subject of resurrection, knowing it's going to divert the attention uh, away from him and create some kind of a, an unending religious uh, discussion between uh, the two groups. And so uh, Paul sits here in this environment 
and uh, practically speaking, he, it dawns on him, if I'm in a hearing that's, the, here, that's been brought together to determine my innocence and I get one sentence out of my mouth and the high priest orders me to be punched in the mouth, I don't think this uh, trial is going to go very uh, good for me. And so let's just bring it all to a screeching halt by introducing a, a subject of great controversy between the two groups, get them fighting over the doctrine uh, of the resurrection. And uh, that was the, some people believe that was the, the ploy that Paul was using here in all of this. And uh, if that was the case, it was very, very successful because the entire trial degenerated into a great uh, dissension between the two groups uh, over the issue of resurrection. And the, the, the fight, uh, the, the dissension became so great that Lysias, this is not a coward, this is a member of the Roman military, becomes so concerned for Paul's safety in the midst of this that he won't be torn from limb to limb, that he orders the Roman military into this melee that's going on to deliver Paul uh, by force and return him to the Roman uh, barracks. And so for Lysias, once again, his attempt to find a a charge of criminal or civil uh, wrongdoing in Paul's life, uh, he strikes out, he fails once again. Personally, I'm very careful to ascribe manipulation or to uh, view Paul in, in a negative way or to put a, a kind of a, a, a ascribe a carnality uh, to him in a situation like this, though it would be very wisdom, uh, wise for him to handle it in the way that some people do. But I'm careful concerning his reputation, not that uh, I idolize him on a level that is, is unhealthy, but the Bible does teach that love uh, believes all things. It gives people the benefit of the doubt, and I don't like to believe the worst that can be be believed about a person based upon a given circumstance, and that includes you as well. I don't believe the things that sometimes come forward because it's so easy to then talk to the person and they say just a simple little thing and your understanding of the whole situation uh, changes. I view it a little more graciously than others do. And I do believe that at this point in the trial, Paul did decide to move the focus of the trial off of himself and to put it on something a little bit more biblical, something uh, like resurrection. And I think he brings up the subject of resurrection here with the intention of then preaching Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection as an evidence of him being the promised Messiah based upon the Old Testament Scriptures. I'm inclined to believe that Paul was intending to begin the kind of sermon before the Sanhedrin that he had delivered in synagogues all across the Roman Empire to declare Jesus to be the promised Jewish Messiah on the basis of the Old Testament Scriptures, including upon the fact of his uh, uh, resurrection from the dead. But you notice before he can even continue his apologetic here, the two groups, as, as much as they went crazy at the mention of the word Gentile, they go into a frenzy at the mention of resurrection here. And before he could continue his 
uh, sermon to them, the two groups begin to fight over the issue of resurrection. And I think that Paul identified himself as a Pharisee because uh, of the two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that was the group he intended to make his appeal to, uh, Jesus as the Messiah, because they alone believed in the resurrection. Now, allow me to close this morning. It won't be a two-minute close, but allow me to close this morning with a, a simple practical application from the passage. I'm always eager when I read the Bible to learn, of course, anything I can in the Bible about uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These, they are the focus of the entire Bible. But anything I can learn in the Bible about the apostles, and even most specifically about the Apostle Paul, that will help me understand him, what made him tick, what made him uh, live the kind of life that he did, have the kind of uh, determination that he had, the kind of fruitfulness uh, that he had. I'm always looking for the reasons for his uh, greatness and the reasons behind the greatness of his influence for uh, the kingdom of, uh, of, of God. And so looking at the, when I see this uh, snapshot of the Apostle Paul here, that's what I'm looking for. And I think we learned something very valuable uh, about the heart and the character of the Apostle uh, Paul here, that if we uh, didn't take time to notice this morning, uh, we would really, really fail to understand uh, the reasons that, and the things that uh, stood behind, as I said, his greatness and the greatness of his influence for the kingdom of God. When I witness Paul's intolerance of hypocrisy his intolerance of corruption in those who claim to represent God, as we see here, his, uh, his intolerance uh, of those kind of things as he denounces here and rebukes the high priest in that regard, uh, to that he hated this kind of thing when he saw it, and that he would let you know about that in an instant. When I see what Paul does in rebuking the high priest, I think to myself, that's the Paul that I recognize. That's the Paul that I know well in the Bible. That's the Paul that I see in the book of Acts and revealed in uh, his epistles, this strong man, this bold man, a man of convictions and uh, uncompromising and so forth. But here we also get a snapshot of a man who could admit when he was wrong and apologize for it. And this is a side of him that I think we can tend not to think of when we think of his greatness. But it was an important part of what made him so great and made him so influential for God. And this snapshot of Paul teaches us an important lesson, and it is a lesson on the power of an apology. No one, I repeat, no one will ever become truly great in terms of influence in other people's lives, not in the world and not in the kingdom of God, if that person does not also know how to admit when they are wrong and then to apologize for the wrong. 
I want us to notice, uh, make some observations from our passage in this regard. No Christian witness is ever harmed by a willingness on the part of a Christian to admit that we were wrong, to admit wrongdoing. It actually endears us to people, and it produces in them a respect for us. When you read this passage here and and, and you make your way through it, is Paul diminished in any way in our eyes, in your eyes this morning, for admitting a wrong and apologizing it for in the passage? Absolutely not. It makes us love him all the more. It makes us respect him all the more. What if in this same situation, Paul had refused to admit that he was wrong, refused to apologize, would that have diminished him in our eyes? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it is related to our lives as well, because we all know in our heart of hearts, there is something fundamentally wrong with a person who cannot admit their wrong and apologize. We all recognize it about the people around us. We can be tempted to think that people will think less of us when we admit wrongdoing and apologize, but the opposite is true. A failure to be able to admit wrongdoing and then apologize for it makes people realize that we have a far bigger problem in our life than the wrong that they've just witnessed us uh, commit. That here is a person that is plagued by perfectionism or insecurity or emotional uh, immaturity, spiritual immaturity, pride, and so forth. Uh, John, uh, Lloyd John Ogilvy, who was a uh, pastor and a former chaplain to the United States Senate, he put this very, very well. He said, it is not our mistakes that do us in. It's our pride that keeps us from admitting them that does us in. And that's very, very good, and it is true about all of life. It is not our mistakes that do us in. It's our pride that keeps us from admitting them. And the idea is that that's what does us in. And nowhere does this unwillingness to admit wrong or to apologize, it, it doesn't do, the damage that it does is nowhere greater than the damage that it does in the relationships that are closest to us and most important to us in life. The damage that it does to a marriage relationship, the damage that it does to a child-parent relationship and a parent-child relationship, the damage that it does to a friendship, the damage that it does uh, to uh, other loved ones within our lives, for them to know this about us, that this is a person that at their core you can never get them, even if you've seen them uh, do something right before your eyes that a normal person ought to apologize for profusely and immediately, this is a person who will not do that. 
And when, if we are like that as a person, it is so obvious to everyone around us, even who has a cursory knowledge of us, that we wear it like a tattoo on our forehead, where a wife might say he's a good man, but he can never admit that he's wrong. A child can say he's a good dad, but he can never admit that he's wrong. She's a good friend, but she can never admit that she's wrong. And it's easy for some of us to go from one offense in our life uh, after another, after another in the course of our lives, just refusing to admit our wrongdoing and refusing to apologize. And what do we do? We ignore it. We pretend that we didn't do it. We pretend that it didn't uh, happen and uh, that in the hopes that somehow over the next few hours or the next few days or weeks and so forth, uh, all of it will be forgotten. But it never is because it's the wrong way to handle this kind of a situation. When we've sinned against another person, Even when it's inadvertent, it's accidental, it's a sin of ignorance. That's what happened with Paul here. Uh, We need to admit our wrongdoing and to apologize. And I want to go in, in just the privacy of my own heart today, in the privacy of your own heart today, that if you or I have trouble doing that this morning, Um, If the sermon has become extraordinarily uncomfortable for you at this particular point and most uncomfortable for you in the light of someone who might be sitting next to you that knows this is exactly who and what uh, you are, the intention is not to make us uncomfortable uh, here this morning, but to make us realize what this kind of thing does in our life and then to produce within us a desire that this would no longer characterize our lives and that this morning would mark the end of that kind of thing going on in our lives. And if you have trouble admitting that you're wrong when you've done something that's obviously wrong and then further apologizing uh, for that, it's so good for us just to determine this morning and say, Lord, with your help, uh, would you help me just to admit my wrongdoing uh, uh, to others and apologize every single time. I don't want to get in this thing where I just kind of stuff it, walk into another room, and then I'll come back in as another person and I expect everyone else to have uh, dealt with it. I don't want to be that person anymore. I want to handle this area of my life with maturity, and I recognize the immaturity that it is on a natural level and certainly on a spiritual level within my life. I want to be uh, done with that. And so, God, would you help me now to have a new start here, to acknowledge my wrongdoing when it occurs, and then to apologize every single time. Lord, I don't know what is the, uh, the scope of the iceberg that is under the tip of the iceberg of this Uh, uh, unwillingness to do so. I know there's a lot of issues in my life that probably have to be dealt with that's behind this, but let's begin to deal with them, and let's out all of them 
by you having me practically begin to make this a characteristic of my life. And then, of course, to begin that in the most important place of all, in the home, in our marriage, in the uh, most intimate of relationships uh, within our life. And then to see if in doing that, if the respect of the other person, uh, it will never ever be diminished by us admitting that we're wrong and asking for forgiveness. No spouse, no child, no parent, no friend, no one were never diminished in their eyes for the capacity, the ability uh, to do that kind of thing. And then to watch when I begin to make that a characteristic of my life. Now she's never heard that before from me. He's never heard that from before, me before. And then now here I am beginning to do it consistently and the respect that will uh, grow immediately in the lives of our loved ones and the people that we care about. I mean, it will be dramatic. And and, uh, and it will be immense. Some of us might even need to uh, stand in front of the mirror before we commit our next wrong and just practice uh, saying, I was wrong. It would be so hard to do that, and, and the words have never been formulated in our, uh, in our mouths before. Look in the mirror. It says, I was wrong there. Why well, apologize? Would you uh, forgive me? Uh, someone has written, home is the place, uh, home is where people go when they're tired of being nice. And uh, so often it's like that. Uh, people are one thing someplace else, but in the relationships that are the most important in life, uh, we uh, uh, abuse them and take them uh, for granted. And so let's have that end in our marriages and in our families and in our uh, lives today. An apology goes a very long way in starting to bring healing to any situation that has created a divide. And all divides are dangerous uh, in a relationship because you lose control at that particular point on where that's going to go. And an apology uh, helps uh, bring healing to that situation. Someone has written, do you know what is the best way to have the less last word in an argument, apologize. And in many arguments, that's the truth. Some of us are, have never been quite the same since Calvin and Hobbes was taken uh, off of the comic uh, page in our newspaper. But uh, famously, there's an old Calvin and Hobbes comic strip where uh, Calvin says to his tiger friend Hobbes, I feel bad that I called Susie names and hurt her feelings. I'm sorry I did it. And Hobbes suggested maybe you should apologize to her. And uh, Calvin pondered a little bit and, and then replied, I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution. <laughs> and and uh, we can hope that there's a less obvious solution, but there isn't a le uh, even a, a more obvious solution. There's, uh, there's no other solution. In the same vein... Uh, but from kind of a different angle, I think that Paul's life here teaches us uh, to be uh, aware uh, if we have a very strong, great zeal for God. Uh, we're the kind of Christian that has very low in, uh, tolerance for hypocrisy. We have a very strong sense of right and wrong. But if 
coupled with those things in our life, if we also find it very difficult to admit wrongdoing, that's a toxic combination. That is a toxic combination spiritually. Paul was everything that I described, a great zeal for God, a strong intolerance for uh, hypocrisy, and these strong sense of, of right and wrong, but it was his humility represented in a willingness to admit wrong and to apologize that kept him safe and fruitful spiritually despite having the strength of convictions that he possessed. I think it's also instructive to notice that Paul admitted his wrongdoing even though what had been done to him by the high priest was far worse than anything he had done uh, to the high priest and that the high priest had not even uh, ventured an apology for the greater thing of ordering Paul to be smitten uh, in the mouth. And I think that sometimes we can be tempted to explain away our uh, need to apologize to someone else because what they did to us was worse. And, uh, I, and, and they, as a result, they should be the first one uh, to apologize. I don't need to apologize until they apologize for the greater thing that they did. But Paul didn't do that here. Paul apologized for a lesser offense. And he had done wrong. He knew he had done wrong. And he made it right on his part in terms of what, despite what the high priest did, and he recognized that the sin of others never legitimizes our sin and uh, losing our temper or reacting uh, in anger. I've asked myself, what was behind the, Paul's motivation for his apology? I mean, here you've got a guy that is, uh, has an immense reputation. He's in a very public setting. Uh, that he uh, does this in. Uh, sometimes when uh, you're the head of something, you're well-known, you have quite a name, quite a, a reputation, or something like this happens in a public setting. There's tremendous pressure uh, to uh, feel like I've got to portray general perfection here. I can't admit any wrongdoing, otherwise it will harm my authority and so forth and all. And Paul is tempted by all of those same things in the way that we are, and yet he doesn't succumb to them. There's something more important to him uh, than his pride or his reputation or all of these kind of things in, in this specific uh, situation. What was the motivation behind the apology? First of all and foremost, to be right uh, with God on the issue to be right in the eyes of God. He apologized because it was the right thing to do in the eyes of God. Paul quoted the verse that he had violated, and he realized that he had not only sinned against the high priest, but that he had sinned against God and his law. And no matter what other people were doing to him, Paul looked at it and said, I've done wrong my conscience is pricked here. I am convicted of what I have done. I have to be right with God, and this was the only way to make it right and to maintain a clear conscience uh, with, with God. The second motivation I see here is that Paul realized that not only was God watching the situation, but a lot of other people were watching it as well. 
And his Christian witness is now in play before a a very large group of people and a very powerful uh, group of people at that moment. And I think it's good to remember that as he apologizes here, that even if our apology isn't received by the other person, and here it wasn't, that when we apologize and uh, it then the entire situation ceases now uh, to be a reflection upon us. But now it becomes solely a reflection upon them and how they handle the uh, apology. And I can't help but notice as well that how quickly Paul apologized. It was instantaneous. As quick as he flashed, and, and he became uh, convicted and aware of his wrongdoing in the light of the Word of God. Just that quickly, he brought forth his uh, admission of wrongdoing and his apology. Uh, it, it is said, and, and uh, truthfully said, that our brokenness, uh, the brokenness in humility in our life as Christians, as anybody but as Christians, is directly proportional to the time that elapses between the moment I sin and the moment I become aware of that sin and then confess it to God and ask for His forgiveness and then confess it to significant others that I've sinned against and ask for their forgiveness. And when that window of time is very narrow, as it is here in Paul's life, it demonstrates tremendous brokenness in this man and a tremendous humility in this man's life. And when that gap is as long as hours, to say nothing of days and even weeks, it's an indication uh, of a, 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 a glaring and alarming uh, lack of humility and brokenness uh, within my life and within our lives. Paul, the speed of Paul's confession here is remarkable, and it's beautiful, and uh, that's why it's important to uh, notice it. I think it's always good to be reminded. So often we look at the Apostle Paul and we say, well, his greatness as a man, uh, the greatness of his uh, spiritual influence for the kingdom of God, that all of it hinged upon, you know, the strength of his character and his boldness and his determination and all of these kind of things that lie so readily on the surface of the Scriptures as we uh, read them. But then to see passages like this, and the Bible is full of them, even concerning the Apostle Paul, and to be reminded that our Christian witness and our influence for the kingdom of God so often hinges on how we handle the small things in our life as well as the larger things. The story is told concerning the conversion of uh, the brilliant uh, Augustine, Uh, one of the early church fathers who would become uh, one of the greatest uh, theologians and greatest figures in all of uh, church history after the apostolic uh, age. And he was at the time of his life greatly impacted, not yet a Christian, greatly impacted by a man named Ambrose who was the bishop of Milan at the time and a man uh, 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 whom uh, Augustine uh, respected intellectually. He was a brilliant man. But when he wrote of Ambrose's influence upon him 
and his ultimate conversion to Christianity, Augustine wrote, my heart warmed toward him, not at first as a teacher of the truth, which I had quite despaired of finding in church, but simply as a man who showed me kindness. And that kindness from the life of Ambrose is what began to break the hard outer shell of Augustine and to lead him into the very significant place of influence that reaches right into this room today, by the way, within the body of Christ. And it was an act of kindness that so impacted him. And an apology, I think, or being quick to apologize and admit wrongdoing has the same kind of power and the same kind of effect upon others. It is the little things within our lives that the Scriptures bring forth and that the Holy Spirit is wanting to fine-tune and bring into a place of obedience to His Word that is so often the difference between staying in a very marginalized and small place spiritually, relationally, and influentially related to the kingdom of God as opposed to exploding into the fullness of what it is that God has for us. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for this uh, little glimpse, a profound glimpse into the life of the Apostle Paul. And as we read the Scriptures, we see his strength, we see his determination, we see his convictions. We know they all came from you, Lord, and he readily admitted that. But it's so easy, Lord, at least it is for me, to look and figure him out solely on the basis of those big and obvious things and to miss the things that tempered all of the rest, the things that indicated a heart of brokenness and a heart of humility, the true key to his greatness and the greatness of his influence. And so it is with our lives as well, and we pray that as we stand here under the, under the influence of this message this morning, that, Lord, if there are in any of us on either an overwhelming level or even a hint of it within our lives, a resistance to an unwillingness to admit our wrongdoing and to apologize that you would use today under the weight of your word and the beautiful wooing and power of your Holy Spirit to break us out of the smallness of that life and the limitations that it places upon us and the harm that it does to others and to our witness. And we pray in Jesus' powerful, mighty name that for each of us that stands before you this morning, and we want this to be a watershed moment in our lives to move from what we are into something altogether different, Lord, that you would uh, uh, accomplish it within our lives with accompanying signs and wonders. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.